Well, good morning. Uh, if you have your, your Bibles with you, why don't you open up to, to Colossians chapter 4. That's where we will uh, be today. We are almost completely through Colossians. We have uh, this Sunday and then next Sunday. Uh, we'll be looking at the final verse and kind of doing uh, an overview of the entire book. But uh, today we'll be looking at verses 14, I'm sorry, 15, 16, and 17 in in Colossians 4. And as you're as you're turning there, uh, our our world is obsessed with health uh, and the pursuit of health. Uh, analysts have reported that the the global health and wellness economy uh, totaled 3.7 trillion dollars uh, in 2016. Uh, and just for comparison, there are only five nations in the world uh, with economies larger than that. Or even just three trillion. Uh, the, the, the health and, and wellness industry, which would include, uh, beauty and, and anti-aging products, uh, fitness, uh, and mind, body exercise, health food, nutrition, uh, weight loss, uh, complementary and alternative medicines, and several other categories. Think about how, how much that en- encompasses. 3.7 trillion dollars. We, we are often so concerned about how we can be improving our health, uh, watching what we eat, changing what we eat, uh, trying to get more exercise. Am I the only one who's always trying to get more exercise but never quite getting the exercise uh, that I'm trying to get, uh, never really exceeding? Uh, we all want to improve our health. Uh, and oftentimes we'll, we'll take seasons of the year, usually right after the holidays, we're like, I've eaten way too many cookies and goodies. Uh, I need to change what, I, what I've been doing just to, to, to improve my health. We often want to improve our health. We also are often concerned with the health of our children or the health of our parents. We worry about the health of the economy or the housing market. But how often have we thought about the health of our church? Or what is it that makes a church healthy or unhealthy? Uh, in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, Pastor Mark Dever uh, identifies exactly that. Uh, nine marks uh, that would identify or make a church to be healthy. Uh, and those nine marks he, he lists would be, number one, expositional preaching, biblical theology, and then a biblical understanding of the gospel, conversion, evangelism, church membership, church discipline, discipleship, and church leadership. He identifies those marks as, hey, this is what will, what will cause a, a church to be healthy or unhealthy. Uh, and what will cause it to, to grow or to be, uh, spiritually sick. Uh, and I think the Apostle Paul would have agreed with all of those because those are thoroughly rooted in Scripture. And then in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul gives us a, a shorter list, an, an abbreviated list. Uh, it's not intended to be exhaustive, but he's going to give these three final uh, exhortations to the Colossian church of saying, hey, pursue these things because these will help uh, the, the church to be strong, to be healthy. He doesn't say that explicitly, but we can understand that anything that that the apostle commands the churches to do is for their good, is for their benefit. Uh, and there's there's four final commands in these last four verses of 15 through 18, but we'll, we'll save the, that final command for for next week. Uh, so read with me verses 15, 16, and 17 here in Colossians 4. Paul says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea 
and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. There's going to be three commands here that the Apostle Paul gives. And he's not giving them to any particular individual. He's actually giving them to the entire church as a whole. Uh, not to... Uh, not to any particular person, but to a, a corporate unit and saying, hey, do these things. And as we, as we look at them today, we're gonna, I guess, understand the, the doctrine of the church. What is the church supposed to do? What is it supposed to be? Uh, the doctrine of the church is known as ecclesiology, that fancy theological term. But that's really what we're going to be looking at today. Oh, and as we look at these three pursuits of a healthy church, we're gonna see and understand, um, what a healthy church looks like. Uh, and these these should be what we pursue and what should characterize us as a church. And if we if those characters uh, characteristics are present in us as a corporate body, we will we will have health. We will be growing together as a church. And if they're not present, we're going to have some serious serious difficulties. So, what are these healthy pursuits? Well, we're going to see three of them. And number one is going to be fellowship with other churches. Uh, a knowledge of God's word and faithfulness in church leaders. Those are the, the three pursuits that Paul is going to lay out for us. And it's going to be so important. It's going to also have some, some big implications for, for all of us just as Christians as well. So let's, let's look first at this first pursuit that we, uh, should, should be following after, that we should promote fellowship with other churches. It's seen in, in, in verse 15. He says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. And to Nympha and the church in her house. Uh, so he shifts from sending greetings from those who have been with him in Rome. That's what we've been looking at in past weeks of uh, verses 10 to 14 in Colossians 4. And now he's saying, all right, now I want you, Colossians, to go and greet others on my behalf. Uh, that's what he is saying. And then he identifies three recipients or intended recipients of his greetings. He says, number one, the brothers at Laodicea. Uh, Laodicea was a neighboring town about 10 miles away from Colossae. He says, hey, go and greet them. Go and greet the brothers. Go and, and greet the Christians in that city on my behalf. And then he names uh, a specific woman, Nympha. He says, you know, we're not sure where she is located. She could have been in Laodicea, but she also could have been in Hierapolis. Uh, there were these three cities who were mentioned in this letter that were close together in what's known as the Lycus Valley. Again, very similar to our Treasure Valley here, how we have three major cities of Boise, Meridian, and, and Nampa. Uh, and so these three cities could be represented there, but we just know uh, that Nympha... Uh, was it was a woman who had a a church meeting in her home we don't know uh really anything more than that but she was more than likely a, a woman of some uh status uh, and wealthy enough to to be able to host a body of believers regularly in her home other than that we really don't know much so uh, he sends his greetings to the brothers at Laodicea to Nympha uh, and to the church uh in her house uh, that's who Paul wants uh, them to greet on his behalf. And what's amazing is oftentimes we, we think of house churches uh, as just being uh, really, really small or, or maybe they, they haven't grown to a certain extent. But this is how the early church began. 
Uh, if, if you look in the book of Acts, uh, and as we've seen in past uh, weeks in Acts 12, 12, the early church met in John Mark's home, uh, in the home of his mother. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, uh, Paul, writing from Ephesus to the Corinthians, talks about uh, meeting in the home of Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, they had been exiled from from Rome, uh, cast out uh, when the Caesar wanted all of the Jews to leave Rome. And uh, Romans talks about that the Roman church was meeting in the house of Priscilla and Aquila as well when they were in Rome. Uh, Romans also mentions a woman named Phoebe who's in the area of Corinth and, and a church meeting in her home and that she was a, a patron of many believers, meaning that she was probably hosting them in her home. Romans 16.23, Paul mentions another man named Gaius who says that he uh, is hosting Paul and then hosting the entire church as well. Acts 16.15 mentions a woman named Lydia who, who brings believers into her home. She was a uh, not a, a Jew, but a God-fearing Gentile who received the gospel and then called for the, the church to meet in her home and gather together with them. And then if you if you turn over just a couple pages to the right to the letter of Philemon. This letter uh, to Philemon is, is very closely related to this letter to Colossians, uh, and that's the letter that we're going to be looking at next. <clears throat> Look at verses 1 and 2. See, the Colossian church met in someone's home. Philemon 1 and 2 begins, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. See, the Colossian church met in the home of Philemon. So they, they understand this, this personal greetings to uh, individual uh, churches and, and the leaders of those churches. And it's, uh, it's amazing, just as I, as I reflect back on even just this last year of, of launching and starting an Ambassador Bible Fellowship, we have a lot of sweet memories of meeting in our home. That's how we, we started uh, in January of 2017, uh, just as a small Bible study in our home, and we've uh, out, outgrown that. But uh, it was such a sweet and precious time. And I remember about a, a year ago, we're, we're beginning to, to, to gather more and more people, and we're beginning to think through, what do we do what do we do next? Where do we where do we meet? And we were looking around several different places, and the Lord graciously provided us with uh, this this room here in, at Coal Valley. And as we were having a meeting together of those believers and, and planning things out, there was a a family that had been involved with the church plant previously, uh, and they said, "Hey, you know what? Don't don't rush this this move to another building." There's something sweet and something precious about gathering together in a home. Uh, to, to worship our Lord, to study His Word, to sing together to the God who has saved us. And I just, I just remember that. We were all excited about this transition. They were like, hey, hold on to this. This is, this is a sweet and, and precious thing. And, uh, and it's, it's amazing of seeing how that is true and, but there's also nothing wrong with with doing what we're doing now, with meeting in, in a larger setting, uh, meeting a, as a as a group. But what's also important as we as we grow, we can't all fit in our living room anymore. Uh, as we grow larger, we also need to grow smaller. Uh, we also still need to have those settings where we can come together uh, and and gather in s- smaller uh, homes to continue to to meet with one another to uh, to study God's word to pray with and for one another. Uh, see the the church in Jerusalem also had this problem because on the day of Pentecost, how many people got saved? Three thousand. 
Think about that. 3,000 people come to know Christ on that day when, when the Apostle Peter preaches. Now suddenly, you have, what do you do with a church of 3,000? He's preaching at the temple, and now what do you do? You can't fit 3,000 people into a home. Maybe Caesar's palace, but uh, that, that's a, a serious issue. But Acts 2.46 says this, And day by day, attending the temple together, so they're coming together, that's where the apostles were teaching, that's where they could all fit, and then they were also breaking bread in their homes. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Uh, they, they came together, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, devoted themselves to prayer, and they did that in homes. Uh, which is why uh, what we want to do is exactly that. On Sunday morning, we gather together corporately uh, to, to sing and worship, uh, praise our Lord Jesus Christ for who He is and what He's done. Then we scatter to our jobs. Uh, we scatter back to our, to our homes, to our neighborhoods. Uh, and that can be difficult at times. But also during the week, we want to gather together throughout this treasure valley in homes, uh, coming together to, to study God's word, to pray with and for one another. That's what we do in our, in our growth groups. And that's so vital because you can come here and, and not really know others or be known by others. But when you're, when you're in a setting of, you know, 120 people, it's easy to, to not, uh, or to be missed by others. But when you're in a setting of, of 10, you're missed, and you are really able to know and be known by others. And that's what we what we want to do, and that's what is encouraged here. That's how the church began, with uh, little groups of believers meeting in homes. Another thing that is interesting here to note is that uh, these the letter carriers, they, they bring these this letter to the Colossians, and we've looked at these letter carriers of Tychicus and uh, Onesimus. They would have passed through... Laodicea before getting to Colossus, because they're coming from Rome, they're, they're traveling from west to east, and Laodicea is in between Rome and Colossae. So it's like, wait a second, why, why does Paul need the Colossians to greet the Laodiceans when the letter carriers already could have come through there and given Paul's greetings to them himself? So, so why is he issuing this command, hey, go back and talk to them? I think what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to promote fellowship among these these house churches in this area. He's trying to encourage them to to know one another and to develop a, a unity and fellowship uh, between them. And also remember, uh, the churches in Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae were all planted by one person, Epaphras. So even though these these churches were planted by the same person, maybe they were beginning to to drift apart while Epaphras is in Rome visiting Paul. And Paul says, hey, make sure you go and greet the brothers. Make sure you, you know them and give them my greetings and that you greet them as well. And it is, it is appropriate for gospel proclaiming churches to get to know one another. Uh, if you're in the same area, to, to partner together to advance the gospel, to advance the kingdom. Uh, you may not know, but we are a part of what's known as the Evangelical Free Church of America. It's a denomination or an association. Uh, this is what uh, the, how the EFCA would describe uh, itself. It says, we are committed to Jesus Christ, to the gospel, and to one another. As an association of churches that align with the same statement of faith, we are distinct yet deeply connected. So the EFCA is autonomous churches that manage their own affairs, but then come together to partner and advance the, 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 the gospel in, uh, in certain communities where there are other, other churches and where churches need to be planted, just like our church. Uh, and... We have to understand there are other gospel-proclaiming churches here in the Treasure Valley. 
There are other churches who are faithful here. We, we are not the last bastion of truth. We are not, not the only ones who, who have the gospel right here in our Treasure Valley. Uh, and there's even another e, EFCA church, another Evangelical Free Church here in our area, Trinity EFC or Evangelical Free Church over in Boise. Uh, and we, it is appropriate for us to pray for their ministry to pray for the gospel to go forth, to partner with them at times, to to advance the gospel in our community. And that, that is what Paul seems to be encouraging here and elsewhere in the New Testament. So we have to, if this is what is appropriate, we have to ask and, and see, hey, how are we doing at praying for not just our own church, but for the advancement of the gospel in a particular area? Are we praying faithfully for other churches, other churches who are ministering faithfully, who are proclaiming the gospel? Are we praying for them? Are we coming alongside them and, and sharing in fellowship with them? That is what we need to, to understand. That is a mark of a healthy church, that it won't be uh, isolationist. Uh, Proverbs talks about if you, if you, he who isolates himself seeks his own will, his own desire. Uh, you, you just want to be alone and by yourself and you want to do your thing. And it's appropriate to to get to know and become familiar with uh, other churches in the area. And does that mean that we partner with every single church? No. Hey, if, if they're proclaiming the gospel, if they have the gospel right, uh, then we, we will be willing to partner with them. If they don't have the gospel right, we're, we're going to have some conversations for, for me to uh, with that pastor. But just speaking with them, of, hey, are we going to go partner with uh, with the Mormon church on certain things? No. Nothing. <laughs> they, they don't have the gospel right. They have a different gospel, a different God, a different view of Christ. So, but so understanding if we are in, if we are like-minded, we can partner with other churches, and that's what's going to help us to be a healthy church. This this first pursuit that Paul speaks of here is directed outwardly. Uh, he says, "Hey, make sure you are greeting other people in the faith." Uh, and the next two that he's going to, to point out in in these verses are going to be inward towards uh, the, the church itself. So, hey, being pursuing and promoting fellowship uh, among other believers, other sound churches in your area. But then also he says, secondly, that we should be pursuing knowledge of God's word. And we see this in verse 16. He says, when this letter, speaking of this letter that he's written to the Colossians, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. This, this second instruction that Paul gives is, hey, make sure you take, after you've read it, and the implication is uh, you would uh, read it together as a church. They wouldn't just pass around the letter. Hey, we got a letter from the Apostle Paul. Uh, why don't you take it home and you read it and then uh, just pass it to whatever family you feel like next. It's like, no, this is very, very precious. What they would have done is they, the entire church would have come together uh, and they would read it publicly. And it probably would have been read publicly by the letter carrier, Tychicus. Uh, and he would have read it to them. So he's saying, hey, after you, after you read this, the implication is copy it and then send a copy of that to, to the Laodiceans. Uh, and then you on your part, take the letter from Laodicea uh, and make sure you bring it over and have it read, uh, and that you read what I sent to them. And now there has been many, many trees who have lost their lives as scholars have written, trying to figure out about this letter to the Laodiceans. What is this letter? It's a letter that we ultimately don't have now or can't truly uh, identify. Uh, and there, there's been a lot of speculation. Some people throughout church history have said, oh, it's going to be, it's Philemon or it's other, other, all of these different views. I think the two best views would be, number one, it could be the letter to the Ephesians. 
the, the letter to Ephesus, uh, the earliest manuscripts of that are, are missing the words to Ephesus. So there's speculation that it could have been a letter that was intended to be passed around. That it was just to the saints in a particular area and it would have been passed around from church to church. That is, that is a, a good option. And we need to, to understand that Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon were all written at the same time and carried by the same men. So Tychicus and Onesimus could have dropped that letter off in Ephesus, uh, and then, uh, taken a copy to Laodicea as well, and then gone on to Colossae. That, that is a, a good option, and there's some faithful pastors that, that would hold to that position. The second option is just that this is a letter that was written by Paul, and it's lost to us right now. now that, that we don't have it. It was lost to history. And not all of Paul's letters were inspired, and then, if I could kind of use a makeup word right now, of inscripturated. Now, they're not all a part of Scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 9 says, I wrote to you in my letter. You're like, wait, but that's... First Corinthians. Is there a zero Corinthians? Is there a, there's a letter before even First Corinthians? And in actuality, we know that that Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthian church, but we only have two. So not all, and not every one of Paul's letters uh, is a part of inspired scripture. And personally, I, I think that this is just a letter that is lost to us. I'm not necessarily ready to say that this was the letter to Ephesus. It totally could be, uh, but. But I think if we get bogged down on that, we've lost the point. Trying to identify this this letter, many people have have focused so much on that that they've lost the point of what, look at what Paul is trying to do. He wants scripture to go to every believer. He wants God's people to know God's word, to be familiar with it. He wants them to be taught. He understood that what he was writing to the Colossians would be valuable to others. If you ever encounter people that, that say uh, the Bible is just an outdated book, it's out, it's outmoded, it's you know, it's two thousand years old. So this this disproves that Paul understood that that what he was writing to this group of people at this point in time should be copied and passed on to others, that it had value in and of itself, and that he understood that what he was writing to the Laodiceans, say, hey, what I've written to them, that's valuable for you, believers at Colossae. Now, so we see that, that scripture is always valuable for the church. Paul understood that what he was writing was going to have immense value for all churches and for all times. And we see that, that he understood, hey, if you read and understand this, your church will be the better for it. That, that reading and understanding God's word is what produces a healthy church. When, when the word of God is absent from a church, or when the word of God has taken place to something else within the church, there can only be spiritual illness and spiritual unhealth, so to speak. You have to have the word of God as your foundation. The uh, the, the Suez Canal is a 120-mile-long canal that goes from the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea. It was built in, in 1869, and before that was built... Ships traveling from Europe to India had to travel for months around Africa. You're like, can you imagine being those people? Like, I'm so glad there's a shortcut now. I don't have to go all the way around Africa to get to, to India. And between 1500 to 1800, two million sailors died of malnutrition traveling from Europe to India. And, and they died because they didn't understand a couple things. They didn't understand proper nutrition. Uh, Vasco da Gama, of, of the 170 sailors that he set out with, 116 of them died 
try, trying to get to, to India. And when Magellan was circumnavigating the, the globe, he lost 208 out of a crew of 230. Think about that. 230 people leave and 22 come back. That, that's some serious, serious attrition and loss because of, not because they were attacked, but because of malnutrition. Because being on the seas that long is dangerous. In 1652, Jan van uh, Rybeck, I probably butchered his name, uh, of the Dutch East India Company landed in the Cape of Good Hope at the southern tip of Africa. And he did that so he could plant fruits and vegetables uh, so that, that ships could come and restock on their way to India. They didn't understand why eating fruits and vegetables helped, but it, they understood that it did. Hey, if we have these plants, if we have these vegetables, that we will still make it. But the, the, the losses still continued. But then something happened. Again, this is over the course of a long period of time. 1795, still almost 150 years after uh, plants and vegetables were, were planted there in South Africa as a kind of a colony. A ship came in to India, or a fleet of ships came in under Commodore Peter Rainier. And it had almost a zero attrition rate. In fact, some of the sailors were even healthier than when they left. And do you know what, do you know what he did differently? Is he traveled and each and every day, the sailors on, in that fleet took just a little bit of lemon juice. Just a little bit uh, of citrus, a little bit of vitamin C. And what we now know that not even one month without vitamin C causes the condition of deadly malnutrition that we know as scurvy. So they could have all of these other things. They could have fresh water on board. They could have plenty of food. They could have uh, fruits and vegetables, all of these things. But what is the one thing that they needed to survive? Just a little bit of lemon juice. And that's how it is with the church. There's a lot of things that the church can, can survive without. Strobe lights, fog machines, air conditioning, PowerPoint slides for the music, electricity, a building, chairs, a choir, a pulpit. Churches in India, it's 120 degrees. They're meeting in just something with a little bit of an an, uh, overcropping. No air conditioning, no chairs. They sit on the floor. And they meet for like four hours. So don't anybody complain uh, if I go along. Uh, but, but, but think about that. What, do you, what is it that we really need to, to be a church? There's a lot of things that the church can do without, but there's one thing that it must have, and that is God's Word. If Christ and His Word are not the cornerstone and foundation upon which all else is built, then the church cannot and will not be healthy. There is no spiritual health apart from the word of Christ as a church or as an individual. Healthy, healthy churches pursue knowledge of God's word and healthy believers will do the same. There should be a desire within us both individually and corporately to know God by knowing his word. The Bible is not an end in and of itself. We're not just doing Bible quizzes, you know, in, in our growth groups. Of, hey, I know the answer to that. Uh, the Bible is a means to an end, and that end is to know God. And that is why we read and study the Bible, because we want to know the one who has revealed himself through the pages of Scripture. 
See, God is, is revealed everywhere. He, he's revealed in creation. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare what? The glory of God. God's existence is evident everywhere. Romans 1 talks about everybody is, is condemned and stands condemned before God because nobody can say that I didn't know God exists because it's like you just have to look around just for like five seconds and say, okay, this didn't happen by an accident. Now, that's what Romans 1 says, that all people are condemned because we know that God exists. It's, it's obvious in the world around us and its complexity. And that we have all sinned against our Creator because we haven't honored Him. We haven't thanked Him for who He is and what He's done. At the base layer, all humanity owes thanks to God because He's given us, as it says in Acts, life, breath, and everything else, uh, which doesn't leave much beyond that. Uh, so all of us... All people stand condemned because we haven't given God the honor and praise that is due to our Creator. So general revelation, the world around us serves to condemn us that we have rebelled against a holy God. But it is the written Word of God, special revelation that shows us how we can be reconciled to the God that we have rebelled against. The God who created us is, is shown to us in the pages of Scripture. It tells us uh, who He is, what He has done for us, how we are to be saved, how we can be reconciled to Him only through His Word and through His Son. Romans 10.9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. See, the written Word is necessary for us to know God. And it is through the Bible that God has revealed Himself to humanity. If we want to know God, we must come to Him through His Word and through His Son. And Paul understood that. He understood that that as a result, uh, he wanted God's Word to go forth to everybody. Say, Colossians, hey, copy this down and pass it along. And that's why we have literally thousands of manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Thousands. We have partials, we have entire uh, books of, the, of Scripture. We, we, this Bible is more reliable than anything else in history uh, in terms of manuscript evidence. And that's because people understood, hey, I need to copy this and pass it on. I need to give it to others. Other people need to know God's Word. And that's why Scripture is so foundational to everything that we do here at Ambassador. That's what we, that's what we truly and wholeheartedly believe is that it needs to be the foundation for everything. That's why we will preach expositionally on Sunday mornings. That's why, uh, the, the goal of our growth groups is to grow. Okay? Uh, just basics, but we want to grow in our understanding of God's Word. We, we want to come and study His Word together and say, uh, and not just come with, with an accumulation of knowledge, but an understanding, what is it that God wants me to do in response to this? We, earlier this year, uh, we read uh, the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 8, in speaking to Israel, God says this. He says, the whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do. So God's saying, hey, the word that I've given you, be sure to listen to it and obey it. He says, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Why did God bring trials and tribulations to the Israelites? Because he wanted to know what? Will you know and obey my word? And then verse 3, And he humbled you and let you hunger 
and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So do we view God's word in that way? Do we, do we value it as God says we should value it? That, hey, if I don't have this, I'm going to perish. And oftentimes you're like, hey, should I read my Bible or should I have that sandwich? You're like, that sandwich is going to, uh, at times, gather our attention more. But which one do we need more? Food or God's word? And it's God's word, absolutely. Do we feel hungry when we haven't been in God's word? Do we have those those pains within our soul that says, hey, I need to, to draw near to God. I need to hear from Him and to know Him. I need to hear from Him through His written word to us. And not only this, again, it's not just a knowledge. And the Bible isn't just a, uh, a seminary textbook. Uh, it is a means to know God. So everything that's written in its pages that we are called to Obey, not just to know it, like, oh yeah, I know how to, I know what's in that chapter, but I'm not obeying that chapter. Uh, and that's why what we do in our groups, uh, when we do gather together throughout the week, we come reading God's Word and we do these little journals, we call it KFCA, nothing to do with Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, but what it, what that KFCA stands for is knowledge should lead to faith, should lead to transformation of our character, the C, should lead to action. And then when we have obeyed God, what do we now gain? experiential knowledge, which then leads back to the KFC. And it's this process of continual growth in our groups. Uh, and, and that is what God desires. Not that we would just uh, balloon our heads with information. Now, when Jesus is uh, another post-resurrection exper- uh, appearance, that's the word I'm looking for. Post-resurrection appearance, not experience. Um, Matthew 28, he appears to, to 500 of his disciples, and he gives them very famous charge, the Great Commission. And he says, I go and make disciples, teaching them. But he doesn't just say teach them information. He says teaching them to observe. To say teach them to obey everything that Jesus has committed. That's what God calls them to. That's what Christ holds his disciples to. Of not just knowing, but then doing, observing, following after him. And that is what we long to do. That is what we, what we need to see and be pursuing is a knowledge and understanding of God's word. But knowledge is the beginning point of spiritual growth. It's not the end point. It's never anything less, but it's always something more. And I pray that we would, we would all have that view of God's word, that we would have a desire to take it in, that we would have a desire to read it, to understand it, and then to apply it to our lives. And the Apostle Paul had that desire. He had that desire for the Colossians, which is why he encouraged them to pass along this letter to others. That was the, the second healthy pursuit that he called them to. And then the third that he, he's gonna, we're going to see in this passage. And the most humbling to me, piercing to my own soul, verse 17, he, he says, press for faithfulness in church leaders. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So first, who is this, who is this Archippus guy? Who are you? Uh, he was more than likely the leader of the church at Colossae. We saw him in Philemon 2. Uh, it means that he's probably the son of Philemon and Apphia. 
He's probably the, their son and the leader of the church while Epaphras is away in Rome. Might be a young man, uh, similar to, to Timothy's age or my own age, uh, early 30s. And Paul's going to issue two commands here in this verse. The first is to the church, and the second command is what the church is supposed to say to Archippus. Notice Paul's not speaking to Archippus directly. He says, hey, church, you need to say this to Archippus. Uh, and so he's, he's going to, to apply some, some pressure upon this, this uh, church leader. He's not going to do it directly. He's going to use a, a holy peer pressure, so to, uh, so to speak. Uh, a, hey, church, congregation, hold this man accountable. And what is he holding them accountable to? He says, say to Archippus. And that, and that command of say, there's a couple different ways of making commands in the Greek. And, and what he uses here is this is an urgent one uh, and one that needs to begin. You need to begin to, to say to Archippus on a regular basis with some urgency. Say this to him, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Paul is in essence saying, hey, church, make sure that Paul, or that Archippus is focused on what he needs to be doing in his ministry. Make sure that he fulfills it. And that, that word, that command, that see, uh, the NASB translates it as take heed. The idea is, is pay close and careful watch or attention to something, uh, to process information by giving it thought, to, to consider, to make note. Say, Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received. And this is a different type of command. This is intended to be an ongoing command. So there's one of, hey, start doing this. Church, start to exhort Archippus. Start to exhort your leader to encourage him and to call him to faithfulness in ministry. And what they are to say is, hey, Archippus, be faithful. Focus upon your ministry. The church is to encourage and exhort Archippus to fulfill what God has placed upon his plate. What, what God has called him to do, the church is called to, to be an accountability to him. Uh, and we don't know exactly what the, the ministry is that, that he is called to. It's not defined. But, but turn over just a couple books to the right to 2 Timothy Chapter 4. Paul is going to use that same phrase. He's going to tell Timothy, another young pastor, he says, fulfill your ministry in chapter 4, verse 5. That's how it ends. But but let's let's back up a little bit to, to verse 1 in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. Take a running start and see the context of what Paul is going to say here. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. So in, it's interesting, in Colossians, who does, who does Paul charge? He charges the church. He's going to give, make this charge to Archippus. But who does Paul, in the, who's he, who are the witnesses, so to speak, that, to hold Timothy accountable? He says, God, Christ. I, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ. And then look at verse 2. He says, to do what? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So what we, what we see here is that, that Paul is saying to Archippus, hey, you need to do what you need to do before the Lord. And I'm calling the entire congregation to hold you accountable to that. Pastors and, and elders are supposed to teach, preach, proclaim, and counsel God's word. And who is to, to hold the, the pastors and elders accountable to that? The congregation. The church. Pastors and elders are always accountable to God and to their flock. The ministry of the word and prayer is to be the focus of the pastor. And Paul is calling for the church of Colossae to hold this young pastor accountable to that. Which is why this pierces my own soul and humbles me. At a, at a seminary graduation ceremony, it's common for one of the faculty of the seminary to, to give a charge to all of these graduates, these future pastors. And, and on one occasion, the seminary president uh, was giving the charge and he, and he asked the question, how can a congregation encourage their pastor to fulfill his ministry? And it's going to be a lengthy quote, but it, but it's so good and so challenging. This is what he says. This is how a congregation can, can hold their pastor accountable and to encourage him to fulfill his ministry. He says, fling him into his office, tear the office sign from the door and nail on the sign study. Take him off the mailing list, lock him up with his books and his Bible, slam him down on his knees before a holy God and a holy text and broken hearts and a superficial flock. Force him to be the one man in our surfeited communities who knows about God. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all night through. Let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Shut his mouth forever from spouting remarks and stop his tongue forever from tripping lightly over every non-essential Require him to have something to say before he dares break the silence. Bend his knees in the lonesome valley. Burn his eyes with weary study. Wreck his emotional poise with worry for God. And make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone. Burn up his church success sheets. Give him a Bible and tie him to the pulpit. And make him preach the word of the living God. Test him. Quiz him, examine him, humiliate him for his ignorance of things divine. Shame him for his good comprehension of finances, batting averages, and political infighting. Laugh at his frustrated effort to play psychiatrist. Form a choir and raise a chant and haunt him with it day and night, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. When at long last he dares enter the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. If he does not, then dismiss him. Tell him you can read the morning paper and digest the television commentaries and think through the day's superficial problems and manage the community's weary drives and and bless the sordid baked potatoes and green beans ad infinitum better than he can. Command him not to come back until he's read and reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up worn and forlorn and say, Thus saith the Lord. 
break him across the board of his ill-gotten popularity, smack him hard with his own prestige, corner him with questions about God, cover him with demands for celestial wisdom, and give him no escape until his back is against the wall of the word. And sit down before him and listen to the only word he has left. God's word. Let him be totally ignorant of the down street gossip, but give him a chapter and order him to walk around it, to camp on it, to sup with it. Come at last to speak it backward and forward until all he says about it rings with the truth of eternity. And when he's burned out by the flaming word, and when he's consumed at last by the fiery grace blazing through him, and when he's privileged to translate the truth of God to man, finally transferred from earth to heaven, then bear him away gently, blow a muted trumpet, and lay him down softly. Place a two-edged sword in his coffin, and raise the tomb triumphant. For he was a brave soldier of the word, and ere he died, he had become a man of God. That quote both inspires me and it intimidates me. It haunts me and it gives me hope. See, the the responsibility that, that Bruce and I have, we will have to give an account for how we shepherd each and every soul that is at our church. We'll have to give an account to God. It's a very, very sobering responsibility to teach and proclaim God's word to God's people. And along with that responsibility comes the need for elders, not just to to teach God's word, but also to obey. See, that the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, that's not a one-time threshold. That's not a, hey, if any man passes that one time, they're qualified to be an elder. Although that's that's an ongoing qualification process. And who is it that is supposed to to understand whether or not a man is qualified for ministry? The people. The members of the church. The congregation. It's so important that the, the pastors and elders of a church are to be held accountable by the church. Which makes church membership very important. Right? Extremely important. Because members need to be followers of Christ. They need to be believing in Jesus and placing their hope and faith and trust in Him. And they need to know doctrine. They need to know theology. So it's kind of this, this, this tension here. The pastors and elders are called to do what? To, to train, to equip, to teach the flock. And then the flock is supposed to do what? To hold those men accountable. And members also need to know about the lives of the men in leadership. 1 Timothy 4.16 says, keep a, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. It says, persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. See, if, I, if I'm going to come up here and, and teach on something, and you know that I'm not doing it in my own life, what are you going to do? Teens, when your parents start to tell you something that you know that they aren't doing themselves, what do you do? You huff and you puff and you roll your eyes and you know that there's hypocrisy and, and that angers you, it frustrates you. And the same can be true if I'm going to get up and proclaim certain things and they're not true in my own life. Pastors sometimes joke that it's uh, being a pastor is like living in a fishbowl. Right? That everybody everybody gets to, to look at you and in your family and you're always uh, in a fishbowl and under a microscope. 
so to speak. And, and sometimes that's difficult on the man and, and upon his family. But to a certain extent, that's also necessary. To a certain extent, you need to know who I am. You need to know who Bruce is. And in the future, you'll need to know who the other elders are and how they conduct their lives. We need to, to know and understand each other. And you are to hold me accountable. Paul wanted the Colossians to hold Archippus accountable to ministry. And God is calling you as a congregation to hold Bruce accountable. No, uh, all joking aside, hold me accountable. Hold me accountable to, to whether or not I am fulfilling the ministry that the Lord has called me to. We need your prayers. We need your encouragement. We need uh, at times to be smacked upside the head uh, when, if, we, if we don't speak lovingly and graciously. We need your accountability so that we might serve you faithfully. And at the same time, Paul called Archippus to fulfill the ministry that he had received in the Lord. And I think it has a direct implication and application for, for how churches are to hold pastors and elders accountable. But I also think there's something to learn for every single believer. Because it's not a question of if you all have a ministry. It's where and how you are called to serve the Lord. See, we all have a ministry. We all have works that God has called us to fulfill and things that we He wants us to do. Where do we find them? God's Word. And what are we called to do? We are called to hold one another to whatever ministry the Lord has called us to be. If you've been called to be a father and a husband, who is to, to hold you accountable in that ministry? The church. Whatever your occupation is, use that occupation for the glory of God. No matter what it is, you can do your work heartily for the glory of God. That's what we saw in Colossians 3. And who's to hold you accountable to that? To, to fulfilling that ministry to your co-workers, to your family, to your neighbors. The church does that. That is what we are to, to promote and encourage. And so what we've seen this morning are these, these three pursuits that will cause a, a church to be healthy. And the, and the first one is, it, it, you can kind of take it or leave it. It's, it's important, it's, it's, but it's not going to, if you don't have it, the church isn't going to collapse. But those last two of a knowledge of God's word and faithfulness and leaders, if those two are not present, that church is going to be no longer a church real quick. It's going to become a club or something else, inevitably. And Jesus understood this. If you, if you turn back to John 21, of the scripture that, that was read earlier today, turn, turn with me back there. You know, a post-resurrection appearance of Christ. And three times, Jesus asked Peter, hey, if, if, he says, do you love me? And what's, what's Peter's answer each time? First two times, he says, hey, Jesus, you know that I love you. And the third time, he appeals to Jesus' omniscience. He says, Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then, what's Jesus' response after that? Each time, what does he say? Look with me, 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says, feed my lambs. Then at the end of verse 16, tend my sheep. The end of verse 17, feed my sheep. 
What is Jesus saying? He's saying, care for my people. And what, what, what are the apostles supposed to, to feed the sheep? What are, what are pastors and elders and, and men of God supposed to do? How do they shepherd the flock of God among us? We proclaim God's word. We teach God's word. Not my own ideas. Not my own wisdom. I don't have, the only wisdom I have is from God's word. I have nothing else to offer. That is what, what Jesus is calling Peter to. If you love Christ as a, as a pastor, as an elder, you have to give Love to God's people by giving them God's word. Anything else is unloving. And that is what, what Jesus called Peter to do, and that is what we long to do here. May we all cling to God's word, and may, may we all strive to fulfill the ministry that has been entrusted to us. Let's, let's pray. Almighty God, you are holy, righteous. You are our judge. You will be the one that we stand before as believers to give an account for how we have used all of the, the time, talents, treasures that you have entrusted to us in this life. Lord, you have given each of us a ministry to fulfill, and may we fulfill it faithfully, honorably in a way that would exalt you rather than exalt ourselves and Lord I pray for for our church for our congregation Lord that you would strengthen and sustain them that you would give them wisdom and discernment and that they would not shrink back from the responsibility that they have to provide accountability for me for Bruce and for any future elder that you bring to us, Lord. May they embrace this responsibility. May they do it with love and grace. And Lord, may you give wisdom and strength to Bruce and I. May you break our hearts. May you help us to dedicate our time, our lives to the ministry of the word, to the ministry of prayer, to to loving your people by feeding your people. And Lord, may we be a church that is healthy because of these things. And Lord, we also pray and thank you for the other gospel-proclaiming churches that are here in the Treasure Valley. Lord, may you be with them. May you continue to sanctify them. Make them churches that are marked by holiness, by a distinctness from the world. May you bless their outreach. May you bless their gospel proclamation. May you continue to to build your church with a capital C here in the Treasure Valley. And may you use all of us, every believer here, to glorify your name rather than ourselves. Lord, we ask this in the precious and holy, magnificent name of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.